welcome to Crawl Space. I'm Tim here today with Lance. Lance, how are you today? I'm doing fantastic today, Tim. Really hope all the listeners out there are doing fantastic and they're going to be doing even better after listening to this interview that we have coming up with an amazing person. But before we get to that, Tim, the question of the day, the $65,000 question of the day, which I will deliver to you by cutting you a check every day for $1 for the next 178 years. How are you? Wow. Can't wait to do uh, the math on that. Uh, I'm doing great, Lance. Uh, thank you for the question and the uh, the $65,000. Uh, this episode is, uh, is really great. We spoke with Jamie Rice of the podcast Murderish, and you can check out everything she does at Murderish.com. You can also follow her on social media at Murderish or Murderish Podcast. And Jamie tells us a little bit about her podcast, but she also tells us about the time that she found a stranger in her bedroom. We've been coming across this theme lately in the past couple of weeks of people invading other people's personal spaces, and that is really terrifying. This happened to Jamie when she was 18, and her mother. Her mother was there as well, so she lived with her mother, and it's a riveting story. Absolutely riveting, and also a cautionary tale. And if someone wanted to listen to this cautionary tale without ads, Tim... I mean, there's got to be a place where they can do this. That's a great question, Lance. You know what? You can subscribe via Apple Podcasts now to our ad-free version of Crawl Space. It's $2.99 a month. Bingo, bango. But if you want our bonus show and ad-free content, you can go to crawlspace.supportedcast.fm, and we've bundled our subscription service with Missing, and you can get a bonus show. It's a weekly bonus show, and you'll get everything ad-free. And that weekly bonus show typically consists of us and our partners partner Jennifer Amell giving our opinions on these cases that we've covered. If you were a member of the missing subscription service, we're still doing that. The old hidden opinion show. So you can still get those more animated opinions and theories about the cases that we cover. And Tim... If someone wanted to follow us on social media, I'm still unsure where to go. Oh, well, I've got an answer. You can follow us at Crawl Space Podcast or Crawl Space Pod. Thank you very much for listening, everybody. Before we get to Jamie's harrowing story, we're going to take a break for our sponsors. Stick around. See you on the flip side. New England is known for its charming towns, comforting foods, and of course, its historical contributions. But the Down East region can have a dark side. I'm investigative journalist Kylie Lowe, and on my weekly podcast, Dark Down East, I dig into both decades-old and modern-day cases from my home state of Maine and the greater New England area. In each episode of Dark Down East, I seek insight from law enforcement officials, family members, and other loved ones who are both deeply familiar with the cases and the individuals at the heart of them. Join me as I unveil intricacies of these stories that are often overlooked, honor the grit of those searching for justice, and shine a light on cases that you aren't hearing on other podcasts. Listen to Dark Down East now, wherever you're listening. Hi there, I'm Jordan Bonaparte, and on my show, Nighttime, I seek out and explore Canada's most fascinating stories. Nighttime stories are told using intimate discussions with those affected. They left you there. That was the last time anyone ever saw her. Jailhouse interviews with those held responsible. The context of that meeting would be some kind of mass shooting. And any other way necessary to get you to the heart of the story. You can join me by subscribing to Nighttime wherever you get streaming audio. True terrors of horror 
bizarre happenings, unexplainable events. On our podcast, Disturbed, Terror Takes Center Stage. Each episode is a journey into the darkest corners of human existence, delving into bone-chilling tales of kidnappings, serial killers, maniacs, and the very essence of your worst nightmares coming to life on this weekly true horror show. Disturbed is not for the faint of heart. It's an exploration of real, unadulterated horror sourced from everyday people. Each episode is a descent into the macabre, where we narrate stories that will leave you on the edge of your seat and crawling in your skin. We navigate the disturbing narratives that lurk in the shadows, offering a raw and unfiltered listen into the most terrifying aspects of the human experience. Enter at your own risk and let the unsettling tales unfold in the haunting realm of Disturbed. And remember, listeners, stay safe out there. Thank you to our sponsors. Back to the program. Welcome, Jamie Rice of Murderish. How are you today? I'm doing so well, and this has been a long time coming, I feel like. I I feel like I know you guys, but don't know you guys. We know all the same people in podcasting, so I was super excited when you guys reached out and was really looking forward to collabing with you. So thank you for having me. Same, same. And we were actually just chatting before we hit record, and then we chatted into the record. So <laughs> not sure how much of that we're going to keep, because it really is some <laughs> some content gold right there. But you said it's felt like it's been a long time coming, and we know a lot of the same people, so it feels like we know each other. I just love that that keeps happening. You've been doing your podcast since 2017, and I just love that after like five to seven years, you can still meet people that you're like, I feel like I know you, but we haven't haven't actually met. It's so true. It's destiny. I'd like to think it's destiny. You know what? I love that. So deep, first of all. And uh, I do think it's destiny. But I totally respect your guys's work. I think you guys are great guys. And I hear through the grapevine that you guys are great guys. So I was very excited to collab with you guys. Those grapes are lying to you. This is Tim and Lance, not Aaron and Justin. Oh, shit. I got to go. Hold on. Hang up. <laughs> That's it. I didn't agree to this. I thought it was Generation Y. <laughs> well, welcome to the show. It has been a long time coming. And uh, we were talking right before we started rolling about one of your first episodes, the stranger in your bedroom story. Yes. So I, I do want to get into that. Can we first, though, hear a little bit about what inspired you to start your podcast? Yeah, I have always been into true crime, probably much like you guys. I mean, I was watching, you know, court TV when I was a preteen. My mom and I watched the O.J. Simpson trial. I would read books about serial killers. So I've always had like that fascination. Fast forward to a few years ago, I had the worst commute in all of America. I was commuting from the Santa Clarita Valley, which is like on the northern tip of Los Angeles County, all the way to Beverly Hills. Hills. And I would come in like so irritated every day. It would take like an hour and 45 minutes. My friend's like, uh, have you ever heard of a podcast? I'm like, what the hell is a podcast? I mean, this is like eight years ago. And it was like complete game changer, you know? And of course, Serial was the first podcast. He's like, you've got to listen to Serial. Um, I've moved 
way past cereal since then, FYI. But yeah, I just started listening and, and binging and it was just totally my jam. It made my commute more tolerable. And then kind of fast forward a little bit in the spring, summer of 2017, I got a jury summons and uh, long story short, I got chosen to be on a jury of a first degree murder trial. It was a two week long trial and I was the jury foreman. It was a very fascinating and, and um, sad experience. I knew that I wanted to tell that story. And I had been contemplating leading up to that, starting a podcast. I just had no clue how to do it, but I knew that I wanted to tell these stories. So I just like Googled the shit out of it, YouTubed the crap out of it and like learned how to podcast. And that was my first episode. It was a retelling of my experience being a juror on a two week murder trial. And then uh, it was just kind of like off to the races from there. And that was about five years ago. To be the four person on a jury is, is pretty incredible. I was chosen for jury duty once and I was like am I going to have to lie to get out of it I heard so many awful things is this going to be like the next OJ Simpson trial that I hadn't heard about <laughs> and 18 months later I'm still sequestered oh. in a hotel like a bad hotel did that cross your mind were you like I yes. don't know if I really want to do this it did and I was so busy in my career at the time like we all are so I did try to put it off I delayed it for a month so it's like I always think about if I wouldn't have delayed it I wouldn't have gotten chosen for this particular trial I delayed it and then a month later I called in both fingers crossed like, all right, let's go. No dice, no dice. Like, you know, like let's not get on this jury. <laughs> and then of course they said, you have to report to the San Fernando Superior Court. I was like, shit. And then of course there's like a vetting process from there. So I thought, well, there's a really good chance they're just going to like send me home. And they didn't. I just kept like making it through and making it through. And I, I honestly was shocked when we entered the courtroom. I knew that it was probably a homicide trial because I happened to sit next to this homicide detective who had nothing to do with being a juror. I don't know why. Maybe he was a witness on another trial that was going on because I was on the floor where all like the criminal trials were going on. And he says, you know, this is a murder trial, right? And I was so like such a rookie. I'm like, what do you mean? How do you know? He's like, there's so many potential jurors in the pool. That's going to be a big big case, potentially a murder trial. And I was like, oh, wow. So we enter the courtroom and the judge, you know, welcomes everybody or whatever. He starts reading off kind of like the way judges do what this trial is essentially going to be about. And all I heard was like, yada, 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 187 or 187. I'm like, oh my God, this is a murder trial. I have listened to enough hip hop where I'm like, 187, that is a murder trial. Uh, and I was just like, holy, holy shit. Like it piqued my interest because I'm just curious. Then I wanted to know what happened. I at least wanted to know what is this trial about? But I also was like, very anxious because I didn't want to sit on a jury for a week or two weeks or three weeks. I felt like I didn't have time. I had a young daughter at the time, career, all this stuff. So anyway, got chosen. And then I was the jury foreman. And it was, like I said, it was a two-week trial. It was absolutely heartbreaking. And so many crazy things have happened since then related to that trial and the people, the perpetrator and the victim. The murder happened in the town that I live in, but the trial took place at a courthouse that's like just outside of where I live. It didn't take place at the courthouse out here. Ever since I was on that trial, I have met, come across, gotten DMs and emails from just all these people who were involved peripherally or directly in this trial. And it's just been a really wild ride since then. How did you get chosen to be the foreman? Nobody wanted to do it. I, I didn't really want to do it, but I'm not shy. I understood the assignment, I think, and I felt like I could do the job in that I, I would allow everybody to speak, nobody to get bullied, you know, into like, you need to go this way with your vote or your decision. It was so interesting because there was 12 of us and it's this big rectangular table in the jury deliberation room. Everybody sitting to my left, the six people to my left were super shy. 
didn't really say much, very quiet people. And then everybody on my right was like, here's my opinion, you know? So it was very interesting. Nobody raised their hand and I was like, you know, I think I can do it. And everybody's like, cool, let's go. And that was it. There's really no magic to it. How did the trial end up? The trial ended up that we convicted uh, the defendant of first degree murder. We had other options, but we did get to first degree murder after two full days of deliberation, plus a weekend in between. To think about it, we fairly quickly got to second degree murder, but we wanted to take our time. We weren't sure if we could actually elevate it to first degree. And so that was the second day was all spent on can we elevate it to first degree And if we can, what is that based on, you know? And so ultimately we got to first degree, we convicted him. It was very nerve wracking. I lost sleep. I did have, I had nightmares because although I saw through trial this defendant's history and it was not good, I stand by our decision to this day. I know that there are people out there who love him and care about him. And now we've sort of got his life in our hands. And I started to get really anxious. Like, what am I about to do? Um, So I took it very seriously. I think everybody did. We had a pretty darn good jury. We were not involved in the sentencing. The judge sentenced him to 28 years to life in prison. We also convicted him on two assault charges because he also very badly assaulted his best friend right before he killed his wife. So two assault charges and then a first degree murder charge. Wow. Wow, that is a heavy responsibility. It definitely is. And you just really don't have any idea until you go through it. And and it's so easy. I learned so much. It's like it's so easy from the outside to go fry that guy, like screw him. He's a a woman beater. And and he he was those things. He's, you know, really not that great of a person. Once you're in it, you're like, oh, my God, I know he has a mom, a dad, a sister, a brother, a cousin, friends who are going to be extremely sad and devastated by us handing down this verdict. But I just had to keep reminding myself, this is what we're there for. This is what he did. Here is the clear evidence that he did this in this way. And I have to do my job. And and I, I think that we did. Uh, but it, w- it was very hard. I don't know that I would want to do it again. And have you covered that case on your podcast? I have. So that was the very first episode. It's called Arvizu Murder, A-R-V-I-Z-U. That was the very first episode of Murderish back in 2017. It's the the only episode that I can literally give you uh, in a 3D look, a real 3D look inside the courtroom, inside the jury deliberation room, you know, what exactly happened, all the evidence that we heard and saw. It's tough going back through it because you know, the victim was just this 25 year old, beautiful girl, you know, who had her whole life ahead of her. I know it sounds so cheesy, but it's just true, you know, and you know, just the pictures you have to see and all that is awful. But I I try my best to just do it in the most respectful way uh, and just get the information out and get the facts out, but not not get into super gory details. You know, I've gotten messages from her family members, her ex-boyfriend. Like I said, there's just been so many people who've reached out since the trial that is always kind of like, oh God, what are they going to say? Even people from his side have reached out. And although they admit, like, I care about him deeply, but they admit at the end of the day, he is where he's supposed to be in the jury they thought were fair. That was a really cool way to describe an episode being a 3D look into a particular crime. And you started off your podcast with that format. And for the two or three people who have not heard Murderish in the world, what can one expect when they fire up episode two and beyond? I do describe it as my podcast is a 3D look 
at murder cases, starting with the town. Where did it happen? What goes on there? What is this town like? What's the population like? Then there's the crime. You know, somebody finds a body. Where'd they find it? How'd they find it? Then it goes into the investigation. What happened during the investigation? What evidence did they find? Then it goes into, it sort of backs up and it walks you through the victim. And I try to spend the most time on the victim. Sometimes, and it sucks, you come across cases and there just isn't a lot of information out there about the victim. But for the most part, you can. You can tell, you know, who they, kind of who they were in life. What were they like? What did people think of them? Uh, what was their family like? So I, so I go through the victim, then there's an arrest, talk about that. And then I walk you through the potential perpetrator or perpetrators. What's their background? You know, where did they grow up? What are they like? What's their life like? Almost every episode has a trial that's taken place. And I walk you through the trial, the most significant uh, and material evidence that was presented during that trial, kind of from both sides. What was the prosecutor's angle? What was the defense team's angle? What did the witnesses say? Was there anything shocking that happened in the courtroom? And then we sort of go into the verdict and the aftermath. You know, there's usually something material that happens after the trial. And I talk about that. If there's any GoFundMes or memorials or laws that were passed based on this case and the victim and the victim's family, you know, we always talk about that. Episodes are about an hour long. You'll get a brand new episode every other Monday. You know, I do think it's a 3D look at murder cases, mostly solved cases, although I have done some unsolved cases. So you started your podcast because of your brush with crime in in the legal sense, I suppose. And one of the first episodes you covered was about someone who broke into your apartment. It's kind of funny. Like when I, I don't know about you guys, but when I started my podcast, I was such a newbie. I did not know exactly what the format was going to be exactly. like, you know, I just didn't know. And I was struggling to do all the research, all the writing, all the promotion promoting all the, you know, everything myself. And I was working full time and had kids just like so many of us. I only put out the episode about myself because I didn't have anything else to release because I was working on a case. It wasn't going to be ready in time. And I was kind of like panicking, like, oh, I want to stick to this release schedule. W what can I do? And I'm like, you know what? Let me just talk about this guy who stalked me at the grocery store and followed me home and ended up in my bedroom. And I totally thought that nobody was going to listen because it doesn't end in murder, which is like really weird to say. I mean, luckily, it, my story didn't end up in murder. But I thought like this is a show called Murderish. I don't know if they're going to think this is interesting at all. And it's probably my most downloaded episode to this date. Whenever I meet people and talk about my show, they're like, oh, that stranger in my bedroom episode. They're all like pretty intrigued by it. And I guess now that I think about it, it is sort of like any person's, especially a woman's worst nightmare. I was 18 years old at the time. Uh, my parents were newly divorced. My mom and I had moved into this little two-bedroom apartment in the south side of Redlands. It's a nice little town where I grew up and went to school. I was either right on the cusp of graduating from high school or like had just graduated. And I say that because it happened on June 12, 1996. I I'd have to go back and look at my records to see when my ceremony was. But either way, I was like about to graduate from high school or a high school graduate. We lived right across the street from a grocery store and it was probably about eight o'clock at night. It was dark out. My mom was a career woman at the time, but also at night she was in law school. She was about to take the bar exam 
And so she was studying every night in her bedroom. She would just lock herself in there and study for the bar exam. So I walked in and I was like, hey, mom, I'm going to drive across the street, go to the grocery store, grab a few things. I'll be right back. She's like, cool. I get in my car, go to the grocery store. Nothing weird happens. And, and literally the grocery store is right across the street. I could have walked, but it was nighttime. I was lazy. Who knew? Who knows? So I took my car. I am about to come into my apartment and there's like that swing arm where you have to like enter your code to get into the apartment parking lot. So I'm entering my code. And I remember at the time there was a car right behind me because there were headlights. Of course, didn't think anything of it. That car came in after I punched in my security code, just like the stick was the security arm was still up. That car drove in, that car parked, left its lights on. I continued driving to like the community mailbox, right? You know, like in most apartments, they have like just this area where there's like a hundred little mailboxes and you just put your key in and get your mail. Put my key in, got my mail. And I remember being like a little irritated because um, that person who was behind me in that car still had their headlights on and they were kind of like shining right on me. And I'm thinking like, dude, turn off your lights, you know? So I turned around and looked at the person. Oh, probably it was me like being like a teenager with an attitude, kind of like trying to glare at them to let them know like, bro, turn off your lights, you know? So I turned around looked at the person. I couldn't really see them because the headlights were shining on me, but I was able to see exactly what the make and model and color of the car was. And I was able to see that it was a man and the man had his headlights on and he had like his driver's side door, like partially open, but he was still sitting in his car. He didn't turn off his lights. So I just turned around, kept getting my mail. I go back into my car and I just drive around 10 seconds, you know, and pull into my assigned parking space. And it was at that time I was gathering my stuff from the car to get out of the car. And before I even opened my driver's door, I look out my windshield and that same man is walking on the sidewalk that runs parallel. And I could see him in my peripheral on the in the left side of my eye. And now he's moving this way. What was alarming at that time was that he was walking and he purposely turned his head had his hands in his pockets and just glared right into my eyes for a very uncomfortable amount of time. And I knew even as like a very naive teenager who'd never, you know, experienced any kind of like crime or anything like that. I was like, this is odd. He did not have to do that. And it was different from like a man just like looking in the window and giving you kind of like a weird stare. It's like, okay, what's he looking at? It was just so odd. And it was so long. It felt very long. Well, this is where you're like, okay, Jamie, this is a huge red flag. This is where you just stay in your car and you drive away and you go get help or you let your mom know there's a creepy guy looking at you. But I was, again, had never been the victim of a crime. And I literally was so naive at that point in my life, 18 years old. I thought like bad things only happen to people on the news. And I didn't have a cell phone at the time. It was like before cell phones got popular. So what did I do? I wanted to get to my apartment. So I just got out of my car, even though I felt uncomfortable. So at this point, now that I'm out of my car, I'm walking along that same sidewalk that he's walking on. But he's in front of me now, I would say 10 to 20 feet ahead of me. And he's not looking at me because he's in front of me but I can see the back of his head. So we're walking the same direction. In order for me to get to my apartment, I at some point have to take a fork off to the left. Like the sidewalk's gonna fork off to the left to get to my apartment, or I could just keep going straight in this apartment and it would lead directly to the door of another person who lives in that apartment complex whom I didn't know. I'm about to curve to the left to go toward my apartment and he keeps walking straight and walks right up to the door of that apartment that I just described. I didn't know the people who lived in that apartment, but this man did not appear 
that he would know those people either. And so in my mind, I was able to theorize that like, I think he's just standing there to see where I'm going to go. Like he's just stalling for time so he can see where I'm going to walk to. I knew all this in my head. I don't know why, but instincts. So he's standing there in front of that apartment. But what's important to know is that when he's standing there at that apartment door, there's this like tall hedge that's kind of like long and tall. So the hedge is probably like six feet tall, maybe five feet tall. Since he's standing at that door and I continue walking off to the left, I'm not going to be in his line of sight anymore. In order for him to actually continue seeing me and where I was going, he's going to have to walk away from that apartment door and away from that hedge so he could see where I'm going. So again, in my mind, as I'm walking, I'm wanting to get to my apartment as quickly as possible. By this time, I like I know that he's weird. He's probably standing there for no reason just to walk and see where I'm going. So I just I didn't want to run, though, because I didn't want to like create a panic. But I just wanted to get to my apartment. So I keep walking. And in my head, I'm like, Jamie, you should turn around right now and see if he stepped away from that apartment door to see where you're going. I didn't want to turn around, but like I had to answer that question for myself to just to confirm if he has bad intentions or not. I turn around and he's no longer at that apartment door. He stepped away from it and he's standing there, hands in his pockets, glaring at me, literally just standing. He has nowhere to go. And now he's just staring at me, like wanting to see where I'm going. And that that's when I knew, okay, this guy's actively stalking me. He wants to know where I'm going. And I was so freaking scared. I wanted to run, didn't run because I thought it would create a panic and maybe he would give chase. And my apartment was really close at this point. Like it was right there on my left. I could see my mom's bedroom window. So I just keep walking. And we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Oh, Canada, a vast, idyllic land filled with beavers, loons, lumberjacks, and polite, friendly folks. We have those things for sure, but there's a darker side to the Great White North, full of mystery, crime, the paranormal, and dark history. Join me, Mike Brown, and co-host Matthew Stockton every Monday for the Dark Poutine Podcast as we tell dark stories from north of the 49th parallel. With the Ottaway game covering more international cases, you can listen to Dark Poutine for free wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Sometime in the early 80s, REO Speedwagon's airplane made an unannounced middle-of-the-night landing. This is my friend Kyle McLaughlin, the star of Twin Peaks. And he's telling me about how he discovered a real-life Twin Peaks in rural North Carolina, not far from where he filmed Blue Velvet. What was on the plane was copious amounts of drugs coming in from South America. Supposedly, Pablo Escobar went looking for other spots, quiet, out-of-the-way places to bring in his cocaine. My name is Joshua Davis, and I'm an investigative reporter. Kyle and I talk all the time about the strange things we come across, but nothing was quite as strange as what we found in Varnumtown, North Carolina. There's crooked cops, brother against brother. Everyone's got a story to tell, but does the truth even exist? Welcome to Varnumtown. Varnumtown is available wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks to our sponsors, and now we're back to the program. 
How far away was he? No more than 15 to 20 feet away. And he was right there. So he's close. He's close. He is not far away. If he were to run, he could have tackled me. Like he could have gotten to me pretty quickly and tackled me. Finally, I get to my apartment. It felt like years, but it was like just seconds. And of course, like as in every horror movie, it is true. Now I feel like it's true. You can never get the lock open. Can't get the right key. (laughs) And my mom was a lock freak. And I have taken on that trait. I lock everything. Double lock, blah, blah, blah. Lock my doors, lock my you know, everything. So there's two locks. There's a deadbolt and then like the door handle lock. Right. So I stick my key in and I'm like, oh, my God, oh, my God, it's not unlocking. Oh, my God. Felt like forever. Finally, I get it open, get into my apartment, shut the door immediately. Boom, boom, both locks. And this is where you're again going to be like, Jamie, you are an idiot because I was, again, so naive, never experienced this before, thought bad things probably only happen to people on the news. I locked my doors and I suddenly felt safe. I'm like, you know what? Even if he is after me, can't get me now. I'm in my apartment. Like, what's he going to do? You know, I, I literally just put it out of my mind, walked down the hallway, went into my mom's bedroom and started telling her what I bought at the grocery store. I never mentioned to her this man, never mentioned it, just told her what I got at the grocery store. I don't know if I had intentions of telling her later, like once I put this stuff down, oh, by the way, there's this creepy guy. You're not going to believe it. But I did not mention it to her. So she had no reason to suspect anything alarming was going on. But what's interesting to know is that where he was standing was just outside of my mom's bedroom window. And it was like spring summertime. So she had her window wide open, but she had the vertical blinds closed because my mom is also very big on like privacy. She doesn't want anybody to see her, but she had the window open. So I know now that he heard everything I was saying to my mom, the sidewalk that he was standing on and the position he was in was just right outside her bedroom window. So he knew at that time that I was not in my bedroom. He knew I was in my mom's room talking to her. So he took that opportunity because when I was talking to my mom, and if I were to guess, I talked to my mom for no more than a minute right? I'm in her room going, oh, look at the stuff I bought at the store. She's like, okay, cool. And then we stop our conversation. I take a couple steps back and walk into my bedroom. It was a two bedroom apartment on the bottom floor. And it had that very like typical rectangular porch that has like a three foot tall wooden fence with like some hedges along it. Like anybody could just like jump over the hedges and the little fence and like be on your little porch. Right. And my window in my bedroom, I didn't have a regular window. It was just a big sliding glass door with vertical blinds. So that was my window. And because it was spring, summer, I had my sliding glass door. I had left it open like about a foot, let's say, but the screen was closed. The vertical blinds were closed. And that's how I left it when I went to the store. I didn't remember that at the time. So I guess when I unlocked the door and felt safe, I didn't really realize that that window was open, nor did I think a man would actually come in my house. When I walk into my bedroom, the first thing I see is the vertical blinds are slightly moving back and forth. And I'm like, what the, why are my blinds moving? It's not windy outside. This is really, really odd. But before I even had time to process like milliseconds later, all I see is the top of somebody's head, a man's head, sort of like crouching down and appearing in my bedroom. So he just, he jumped over the porch, walked through the sliding glass door and let himself into my bedroom. And now we're standing face to face within five feet of each other. He's in my bedroom. It's so interesting because I walked into my bedroom at the exact perfect time. And I don't know what would have happened if I would have walked in like two seconds later. And I say that because when I walked in, saw him and confronted him, it was very clear to me that I caught him way off guard. 
I ruined whatever plan that he had. And he was actually frightened. He was like, uh, uh, my mom later told me that what I said, I said something like, what, who the fuck are you? Like I yelled at him. I was so like appalled that somebody's in my space, let alone a man who I don't know, you know? And so I yelled at him like, who the F are you? What are you, what are you doing? You know, what are you doing in my room? And he was searching for something to say. He was totally trying to like, you know, say something off the cuff. And he's like, uh, uh, and he wouldn't look at me and he's like looking around and he's like, um, uh, I think my cat, my, my cat, I think my cat like came in your room. I just want to get my cat. I think my cat came in here and I'm like, bullshit. Your cat's not in my room. Like I was just yelling at him. This is so like 18 year old Jamie. But my mom said that I said, ew, like get the fuck out of my room. Like you pervert. It's so something I would have said when I was 18. What's interesting too, is that like my mom, she was studying for the bar and I had a boyfriend at the time who was very close with my family and he would often come to the apartment and like it wouldn't be out of the ordinary for him to see my sliding glass door open and just like jump over and come in like, hey guys, I'm here. You know, we were very comfortable that way. So my mom, she's not thinking like that anything's going on at first. She's thinking that I'm like joking around with my boyfriend like, ew, get out of my room, you know, who knows. But at some point my mom is like, hold on something's going on. I could hear in my daughter's voice that she's distressed. My mom's in her room doing whatever she's doing. I'm yelling at this guy after he gives me the cat story. And I'm like, no, get the F out. He turns around and he runs. He runs out of the sliding glass door, probably hops over the gate. I couldn't see him because my blinds are closed. It was like at the same exact time that my mom was like, oh shit, something's wrong. I can hear it in Jamie's voice. She comes running in with her gun and she's like, what's going on? My mom is like a real pit bull. Like she's a spitfire um, and she is always packing heat. So she's like had her gun in her desk and it was loaded. Cause like, that's just what she does. So she comes running in my room and she has her gun. And she's like, what the fuck's going on? I'm like, there's a man, there's a man. He went that way. So my mom runs out of my sliding glass door, literally like, <laughs> like GI Joe, the all American hero. She literally like jumps over the little hedge thing. And now she's on this like big grassy knoll, like looking for the sky and she's got her gun. Like she's just like pointing it everywhere. Like where the fuck is he? And it's like this whole thing. And I'm like, oh my God, thank God nobody came out and was like, who the hell is this crazy lady with a gun? Just like waving it around, you know? I guess going back a little bit, the reason why it's like so good that I walked in when I did is because that guy knew I was in my mom's bedroom at that time. That's why he entered my room at that moment because he thought he was going to be able to come in and like hide in my little, I had a little walk-in closet that he could have easily hidden. I also had a day bed and, you know, day beds are like really high off the ground and there was nothing underneath. So like he could have just rolled under there and I would have gone to bed and had no clue he's in my room. It's so frightening to think just somebody's looking out for me that night because I walked into the perfect time and I actually caught him off guard. If it would have been like five seconds later, he would have had plenty of time to just come in undetected, hide in the closet. Jamie goes to bed and they're like, who knows what happens? We never did catch him that night. We called the police immediately. They came over. They took a report. I was able to give them a very good description. I still to this day can picture his car, the make, the model, the color. I know exactly what he looked like. Everything. The only question I couldn't answer, which is pretty weird. I didn't know if he had facial hair. And here we are like standing right in front of each other. But I think I was so traumatized and in shock that I wasn't really observing what I was seeing other than like peripherally. Like I know he had silver hair. I know he was a white man. I know his approximate build and height. I know exactly what he was wearing. He was wearing like a white t-shirt, collared, like polo tee, you know, with like a 
tan, like work pants, like office pants with like dress shoes. To me, he looked like he definitely played golf at the country club with his buddies. He's somebody's boss. He was probably in his mid fifties to like very early sixties. Looked like he had money. He drove a Lexus, like a newer Lexus. Um, He looked like he was like a CPA, a real estate broker, maybe the CEO of a bank, like professional. He was to me, absolutely somebody's boss, somebody's father, somebody's husband, somebody's golf buddy, somebody's college friend. Like it just, it's so crazy to think like, and do they know that this is what he does, that he follows girls home? They never caught him, which is really pains me to this day. I have reached out to a private investigator. I've considered taking that route and that's still not out of the realm of possibility. I still think that we can catch him. Redlands is a really small town. I have a really good description of him, his car at the time. I feel like I know he either worked or lived in that immediate area because that area of town is, it's not a town where it's like people just like stop in from out of town to go to the store. You were going to that grocery store because you just got off work and it's right by your house or right by your office. What do you think he was there to do? I have played out every scenario. It could have been as, and I don't, I'm not going to use the word simple, but it could have just been something like he's going to go into my undergarments drawer and steal something from there. You know, that that's a thing. Or he was going to go and hide and sexually assault me, maybe worse. I feel like it's one of those, it's in that realm because why is he taking all this risk? He very clearly has unnatural, unhealthy impulses. I think he was at the store not to like go find a girl. I think he was just there and was like, uh, I see something. And he was just acted on impulse. I think it was a crime of opportunity. I don't, I don't think it was any kind of premeditated. Let me go to the store and find a young girl to follow home, but maybe. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsor. Hi, listeners. I'm Vanessa Richardson, host of the podcast Serial Killers. Like many of you, I'm fascinated by the darker side of humanity. What causes someone to develop such deadly desires and why they decide to act on them? For the past six years, I've been able to explore these curiosities weekly, tapping into the mental states of the world's most notorious killers, examining their backgrounds and habits, searching for answers. If you haven't had a chance to check out our show, there's truly no better time to dive in. With hundreds of episodes to binge and new ones released weekly, Serial Killers is the perfect podcast for any avid true crime fan. Follow Serial Killers on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Kickoff for Super Bowl 34. The Titans-Rams 2000 Super Bowl, an instant classic. Hours after the game, two men were stabbed in the street, accused of being in the middle, the greatest linebacker in NFL history. Ray Lewis and two friends are charged with murder. The nation's eyes were glued to their televisions. The trial concluded and the verdicts came back. Not guilty. What you can learn from all this is that big cases make for big mistakes. Look what happened to O.J. Simpson. And look what happened to Ray Lewis. Lewis went on to have a Hall of Fame career, but questions around that night in Atlanta still remain. So what do you think they're hiding? They know what happened. They know exactly what happened. After 20 years, it's time to get to the bottom line truth. From Tenderfoot TV, I'm Tim Livingston, and this is The Raven. Listen for free on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. For ad-free listening and early access, 
Subscribe to Tenderfoot Plus on tenderfootplus.com. Listen to the 48 Hours podcast for shocking murder cases and compelling real-life dramas from one of television's most watched true crime shows. Go behind the scenes of each episode with award-winning CBS News correspondents and producers in Postmortem, a weekly deep dive. Listen to 48 Hours wherever you get your podcasts. And a thank you to our sponsors. Back to the program. It's a little far for just opportunity, though, right? Because if that's the case, he followed you from the store all the way into your apartment complex and literally into your bedroom. Yes. My apartment was literally within five minutes walking distance. I could have walked to the grocery store. All I have to do is cross a crosswalk and I'm in the parking lot. So he didn't have to drive far at all. I've spoken with Dr. Shiloh about this. She gave me a lot of insight and a lot of like food for thought. Whereas like I would probably circle back to her before I went forward with like a private investigator because she was really able to make my wheels spin as far as who he could have been, where he could have worked. So interesting. I It just kills me because I'm somebody who's always had a strong sense of justice. I'm always like the bad guy has to be caught. We can't not have justice. And it, and it makes me lose sleep at night. It's interesting to think like, you know, was I the first one? Probably not, you know, because somebody who behaves that way probably has either done it before or did it again. And I was the first one and he continued to do it. I don't think that's like a one-off behavior. I think that I ruined his plan that night. So I think that it's like, he's going to follow through with it one way or another. So I ruined his plan that night. Thank goodness for me, but unfortunate maybe for another victim. And that's, that scares me. I don't know what he's done since then. He could be in prison or he could just be still on the golf course with his buddies and retired. My mom and I were so afraid that the very next day we gave our notice, we broke our lease several months early. We put up all these flyers because we were concerned for women's safety in the apartment complex. And, you know, like I said, my mom is like a real spitfire. So she's like five foot nothing, but like doesn't take any shit. And so She went into the lease office and was like, hey, this happened. We've put up these flyers. It's a real safety concern. Oh, and by the way, here's our notice. Like, we're moving out today. We're very scared. This man knows where we live now. He hasn't been caught. And they tried to, like, get us to pay for breaking our lease. My mom was like, yeah, no. (laughs) Yeah, no, that's not happening. And she says we put up these flyers. They went and took down the flyers that same day because it's bad for business which really pissed my mom off. Like if social media would have been a big thing back then, I could see her like shouting it out from the rooftops, you know, like, hey, there's a dude on the loose who followed my daughter home and beware. Um, But we moved out the very next day. We literally grabbed our shit and moved. We were very, very afraid. Have you ever checked any death records for that area? That's a great question. I have not because it's overwhelming to like, I don't know his name, exact age, but I guess that could be a starting point. I have gone to social media and specifically local like Redlands. Redlands is the town that I lived in where it happened. Facebook groups to say, hey, you guys, this is a long shot. Here's a picture of the exact like model and color car he had. Here's a description of him. My theory is he was definitely a professional. Do you or anybody you know remember having like a friend's dad who maybe matched that description at the time or grandfather, uncle? There was one message that I got that it was pretty interesting. And she shared with me that a man came in and actually stole some of her undergarments. And I think I had determined that it wasn't the same guy, but I have tried, but I want to try harder. I'm definitely not opposed to hiring a private investigator. I don't have his license plate number, which I think would be, I I wish that would be huge. 
but I do know the kind of car and like what he looked like, approximate age, area where he lived or worked or both. So I do have something to go on, some things to go on. Was there a composite sketch? No, I don't know if it was the times or what, but I don't remember law enforcement or anybody taking it very seriously. I kick myself to this day because Jamie, 44-year-old Jamie, like today's Jamie, would have absolutely filed a report, followed up. Have you done anything? Have you? I would have gone to the news and said like, hey, this happened, you know, out of concern for for everybody else. But like I was 18 and I, I just thought law enforcement comes and they know what to do. And they took a report. But I do think that that's where it stopped. We never got any kind of like follow up phone call. Nothing. I wish I could go back and do things differently, though. What is it about somebody that you think would cause them to act so brazen in this impulse? Because if you're working within this impulse at some point, like when does it stop becoming impulsive? And start becoming like, here's a plan that I'm putting into motion. And then you start acting brazen. Sure. What kind of person would do that? Let me talk to Dr. Shiloh and she could probably spout off some potentials. I think this is somebody who is not your average everyday human being. He thinks differently. His impulses are differently than ours. And like, obviously, like we know this about like serial killers and, you know, family annihilators. And like there's a certain psychology that goes along with it that's different from you and me and mostly everybody else. I think that he's got something, some sexual perversion or like some some very unsavory impulses that are unhealthy and unnatural. It's almost like he can't help it. And I'm not giving him a pass. It's like he has to fulfill that impulse and he's going to do what it takes. He's going to take all these risks. And he took many risks that night to do whatever he was going to do, but to fulfill his impulse. What a harrowing story. You said he drives a Lexus, looks like he's someone's boss, perhaps. So he's obviously not concerned if he's about to get caught. Even if he doesn't get caught and he goes through with an attack, you still have his description. Yes. He doesn't care. No, he doesn't care because his first concern is not, oh, shoot, I'm going to get caught. His unnatural impulse is so strong that it's literally he's probably blinded. There's no reason to it. It's like he's not even probably even thinking at the time about the risk. He's like, I've got to fulfill this unnatural impulse, which is really scary. It's so frightening for me to think this happened on a weekday, right? It wasn't a Friday. So like he probably went to work the next day and just grabbed coffee, water cooler talk, you know, did whatever he does at work. And nobody knows that he stalked a girl and went into her bedroom. It's so frightening. Like, and then I start thinking, you know, I worked in the corporate world doing commercial real estate financing for like 18 years for these big banks and stuff. And I and I think like, God, I mean, I, you don't really know these people. They look as if they're like fine people in society, but you never really know. This guy, hands down was a professional, somebody who was not struggling with money. I worked with men my whole 18-year corporate career who looked just like him. They were my bosses, my colleagues. Like, it's just very scary. And how old was he? I think he was anywhere from, like, early 50s to early 60s. He had, like, silver hair, but he wasn't, like, an old man at all. I'm not going to call him a silver fox because he wasn't a fox, but just one of those dudes where it's like he's not old. He's probably still on the golf course and like young, but has silver hair. So it wasn't Joseph D'Angelo. I'm so glad you said that because I have had many listeners be like, hold on. This is right around the time. And he did visit Southern California and commit crimes there. Yeah, He's 77, I guess, now. 
it really works. The age range does work because if my guy, let's say he was like 55, you know, 65, 75. Yeah. I mean that maybe he was 50, you know, and that would work. That would put him right at about 75, I think now. So it's interesting that you picked up on that because yeah, there were some listeners that are like, hold on, this could be the golden state killer. I don't know if that matches his MO. He would enter people's places. It seemed like after a period of time of stalking though, right? Yeah. Wasn't so impulsive. Yeah, exactly. Impulsive. Good word there. Yeah. That's something I haven't really considered. In my mind, I'm convinced, and maybe it's because law enforcement convinced me. Law enforcement are the ones who put it in my head that he probably saw you at the grocery store. When it all happened, I just thought he came out of nowhere. I, I wasn't thinking. I was like still in shock. And they're like, well, what'd you do tonight? And I told them and they're like, he probably saw you at the grocery store, which makes sense because there was a car behind me, which turned out to be him. So like he followed me home. But I guess I haven't really given much thought to maybe he was following me for a while. Maybe he was watching me for a while and he saw me leave my apartment, followed me to the store and then followed me back. I don't know. It is a possibility that it was a little more calculated and, and maybe a little more sinister. I don't know. Are you planning to do something else with this story? I am. And it's such crazy timing. I have never gone back to that apartment complex or grocery store since this happened. But I've always been sort of in the back of my mind the next time I go to Redlands to visit family or friends, I should stop by and just kind of like see what it looks like and kind of like relive it as weird as that sounds. I have an assistant. She's a film school grad. So she's very good with like video and stuff. And uh, I told her, I said, you know what? Let's ditch work and let's take a field trip to Redlands and you can document it. So that's what we're going to do. And that's happening tomorrow. So tomorrow we're going to hop in the car. It's about an hour and a half from here. And she's going to sort of do like a mini documentary with her iPhone, capture some conversation in the car because she doesn't really know the full story either. So I can kind of walk her through some of it on the drive out there. We're going to start at the grocery store. You know, she can kind of pan around to see like, here's the grocery store. And if you just turn 180 degrees, there's my apartment. Give people um, some perspective. And then we're going to drive over to my apartment. We're going to go. We're going to get out. We're going to walk through the whole thing. I don't know how it's going to feel, but I really feel driven to do it. I think it'll be interesting. And this episode is the one that gets brought up the most by listeners. Like when I get a DM or an email, it's like, oh, what, what's up with that stranger in your bedroom? Oh, I have a theory or maybe it was the Golden State Killer. And I appreciate that people are saying those things because it takes all kinds of different brains to sort of like figure out, well, oh, I haven't considered that. Hold on. You know, this is interesting. So I think it'll be a really cool follow up for people who were really intrigued by that episode. But it's like 50 percent for that. But it's 50 percent to fulfill something in me who's always wanted to go back and just sort of like see it all and go through it. So we're doing that tomorrow and I'm going to release it on YouTube after she gets it all edited and uh, I'll release it in probably short bits on social media. And uh, I think it'll be interesting. Might be a little creepy. It just occurred to me when you said you were going to do a walkthrough at the beginning of this story, you said that you took the car and you were like, oh, I don't know, maybe it was because I was lazy or something and I didn't want to walk. Could you imagine if you had walked? I mean, that <sighs> would have been even worse. You're the first person to ever put that thought in my mind. I, I have never considered if I had walked like, gosh, I mean, he, he could have been driving and like forced me into his car. You know what I mean? At least I, I had some safety for, for a period of time. Cause I was in a locked car that was moving, 
you know? So at some point I was like safe ish in my car, but if I was walking, gosh, I am just like out there exposed and who, who knows? Gosh, that's a really interesting thought that I, I haven't considered, uh, at all. Well, just in case you wanted to make it more terrifying in your own head. <laughs> Thank you for the nightmare tonight. You're welcome. So appreciate the additional nightmare tonight. So appreciate it. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> 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 I'm like dying to just pick this apart a little more. It just fascinates me, the behavior of somebody who would do that. And again, I'm, I'm not giving this dude a pass at all. I don't know what's going on in his brain, but I wonder, was it a decision or is it like there's something psychological going on where he's literally blinded by his impulse that he doesn't even have the ability at that time to make a rational decision? I don't know. That's not my expertise. But you're right. Like, it's so much risk, risk after risk after risk that he took. And gosh, what if my mom would have shot him? She would have. I think about that. My dad and I were just talking about it recently. He's like, honey, your mom would have blasted that guy. Like, she probably would have given him two hot seconds to explain himself. And then, I don't know. I mean, shit. Can you even imagine that? Like, I, I just, then now there's a dead guy laying in front of me. Like, I, I don't know, but it's she's a mother and I am a mother and I know how it feels when you feel like your babies are in danger. And I know the lengths that a parent or guardian or somebody who loves somebody will go to to protect them. So I was very lucky that night, but dude was really lucky, too because it could have ended very badly for him. He really got off in a very fortunate way. He did. I just wish he would have been caught. It's not that I wish him dead. I wanted him to be caught, and I want to hear what he has to say for himself, and I want to know his history. We all probably share this in common. Like, that's my true crime brain. It's like, I need to know everything about you. Have you done this before? Why'd you do it? Why me? What were you going to do? I need to know it all, and it drives me nuts. And it really scares me to think about what he's done to other women since then. Yeah. And you would think there would be some escalation at some point, you know? Yeah. It, it's very hard to imagine. I, if I were to put money on it, I think he probably did. I hope not. But I just think somebody like that doesn't stop. It escalates. And if I wouldn't have come at him so aggressively, I wonder if I would have walked in and just been like showed my fear, like, ah, you know, don't hurt me. Or I, I don't know. I, I wonder if he would have then just been like charged. And then what would have happened? There's just all these different scenarios that I play in my mind that I don't. I mean, I'm thankful that I'm still here and um, it didn't escalate for me, at least that night. So please keep us in the loop on what happens during this trip. And if there's any developments in regards to this individual. What an amazing story. Thank you for, you know, being ears to listen. I've told the story so many times. I've never told it to you guys. And so like some commentary and questions that you guys have raised are it, there's new questions and angles every time I talk to somebody about it. And it makes my wheels spin go, oh, hold on. Let me think about that. So it's been really fun, you know, talking through it with you guys. Give me more food for thought. I, I think that these kind of things are important. There's controversy over true crime podcasts and there's good things about true crime podcasts, but I absolutely stand by the fact that I've learned so much as a woman about how better to stay safe and to spot red flags and dangerous situations that could get more dangerous if I don't take certain steps. And so, you know, telling this story, like, I just hope that like whoever listens to it is like, this stuff does happen. And it's not always the dude who looks raggedy on the street. It's, it's a corporate guy who's probably somebody's boss, who's very clean cut, who will do this. And so like, just be aware and also don't do the things that I did that night, <laughs> you know, like stay in your car, don't get out. If you get a really bad feeling, and I, you know, there's things I could done different. There's something to be learned from this. Well, thank you for spending some time with us and sharing your story. Yeah, we really appreciate it. I appreciate you guys. Thank you. 